Well, this is indeed a privilege to stand before you, people of God. And today's sermon is entitled, What to Do in Times of Loss, Sorrow, and Distress. Most, if not all of us, have experienced significant losses in some way or another. Perhaps it was a job or ministry or the loss of good health or a large investment like a house or business. Or maybe it was the loss of a special friendship or even worse, the loss of a loved one through separation, divorce, or even death. Such crises can lead us and those who are close to us to experience intense sorrow. What should we do in such moments of grief and pain? Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 30. That's 1 Samuel 30. And as you turn there, we will be looking at a key figure in the Old Testament, David, God's anointed king, though not yet officially appointed to office. At this point, he is escaping from his jealous predecessor, King Saul, who has made many attempts to kill him. Being fearful of King Saul's relentless pursuits to take his life and thereby putting many other lives at stake, David had sought refuge on two occasions among the Philistines, one of Israel's arch enemies. However, despite his failure to trust God for protection in both instances, the Lord in his sovereign care of David continues to show him great mercy, as we will see from this biblical record. And in seeing such divine mercy on display, we will also gain some insights from this man after God's own heart, which will help us know what to do in times of loss, sorrow, and distress. The first thing we will observe from David's response to great loss is this. Weep and wait. Weep and wait. We see this in verses 1 through 6. But first, let's notice the devastating discovery in verses 1 to 3. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Then it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had made a raid on the Negev and on Ziklag, and had overthrown Ziklag and burned it with fire. And they took captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great, without killing anyone, and carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters had been taken captive. Let's pause there. 
So far, we know from the outset who committed the arson and the kidnapping. According to verse 1, the culprits were the Amalekites, other arch enemies of Israel, going all the way back to their exodus from Egypt. But neither David or his men knew at this point who was responsible for these great crimes. Notice also in verse 3, when David and his men came to the city, behold, and what a sight it was for them to behold. Can you imagine what they must have thought and felt as they looked all around them? No matter which direction they looked, there were destruction and devastating losses everywhere. But notice next with me their heart-wrenching response. Verse 4 says, Then David and the people who were with him lifted their voices and wept until there was no strength left or in them to weep. Now think for a moment what hundreds of men would sound like crying out loudly as they weep over a burned city that was missing their wives and their sons and their daughters. They probably even wept for hours, as we are told, until there was no strength in them to weep. Maybe you've heard it said, like I have, that real men don't cry. Really? Not according to the Bible, nor from personal experience. Yes, real men do cry. Now let's observe how David moved from the point of weeping to waiting, thereby finding solace for his soul. Continuing with verses 5 and 6 of 1 Samuel 30. Now David's two wives had been taken captive, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. What do we see here? Well, David's life was now threatened as the grief of his men quickly turned into bitterness. Notice again the term in verse 6, embittered. Some of you may be reading a translation that says grieved or bitter. Literally, the term speaks of bitterness in soul, sometimes even to the point of becoming enraged. It can also mean vexed. And would you also notice in verse 6 the reason for each man's vexation? It was because of his sons and his daughters. They blamed David for their missing children. After all, he was their leader, right? And in their loyalty to him, as he fled from King Saul, they followed him to live among the Philistines. 
We read about this in 1 Samuel 27. Please turn there. 1 Samuel 27, and let us begin at verse 1. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. That was quite a commitment they made to follow David, wasn't it? These 600 men relocated their entire households to live within enemy territory for almost a year and a half. So we could understand why they were so bitterly enraged against David, even to the point that they wanted to stone him. But before we move on to see what else had taken place that brought David and his men to this crisis point, notice again what is stated at the beginning of verses 1 and 2 of chapter 27. In verse 1, then David said to himself, in verse 2, so David arose and crossed over. David said to himself, what is that? That's self-talk. He consulted the committee of me, myself, and I, and came up with a seemingly brilliant, pragmatic plan, which worked for a year and four months. No mention is made here of him consulting the Lord in prayer. However, if you carefully study chapters 19 to 26 of this book and connect them with the Psalms that were written in connection with the events that took place, you will notice a clear pattern of prayer in David's life. Is there a clear pattern of prayer in our lives as believers? Are we living prayerfully? Or are we living pragmatically? Pragmatism, by the way, is a philosophy that says the ends justifies the means. As long as you get what you want, pragmatism says, it doesn't matter how you get it. That's a very ungodly philosophy to live by. And it ought to be repented of 
as indicated already, prior to the start of chapter 27, David was walking more by faith instead of sight. He was living more in the fear of the Lord than in the fear of man. But at this moment, he is self-focused, self-willed, and self-led in need of a divine wake-up call. This leads us to 1 Samuel 29, which we won't read for the sake of time. But there, we discover that David was in a predicament as his pragmatic plan came to an end. He and his men were now with King Achish, being led by the Philistine army to fight against, of all people, King Saul and their fellow Israelites. But the commanders of the Philistines strongly objected to David's going with them in battle, forcing King Achish to send him and his 600 men back to Ziklag a journey that took three days for them to return to their households. At least, that's what they expected. Which brings us back to where we left off in 1 Samuel 30. Now faced with the devastating discovery, which led to great bitterness against him, where would David find comfort for his soul? Verse 6 tells us, that the dramatic turn of events caused him to become greatly distressed with everything burned to the ground and all his men embittered against him because of their missing children. Where would he find the encouragement he needed? The last part of verse 6 tells us, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's the key. The divine wake-up call came, and David found his strength in the Lord, his God. Rather than reacting impulsively to his angry men, and instead of quickly trying to bargain with them in light of their treasonous intentions, we read, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Now, what David did to strengthen himself in the Lord, what did he do? We don't know exactly, but some of us would recall that his best friend previously helped him in this regard. 1 Samuel 23, reading from verse 15, says, Now David became aware that Saul had come out to seek his life while David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. David had so many past mercies of God to recall, including what Jonathan did and said, which would serve as a source of encouragement to him in his present distress. As a matter of fact, David was delivered from numerous life-threatening circumstances before this particular devastating experience even occurred, which we're reading about in 1 Samuel 30. As a result, 
of some of the very same dreadful experiences he endured up to this point. He wrote at least eight Psalms. Now back to 1 Samuel 30. So far, we've seen the devastating discovery by David and his men, their heart-wrenching response, and how David found consolation for his soul. But what difference should all of this make in our lives today as believers? How can we apply the positive examples we've noticed so far in David's life? Here's a first application point, which I will state in the first person singular. In times of loss, sorrow, and distress, it is appropriate for me to weep and essential for me to wait on the Lord, thereby strengthening myself in him. But what more can we learn from David's dilemma? He still doesn't know who the criminals are. His men are enraged against him. However, after his weeping and waiting on God, the very next thing we observe about him reveals the need to pray and proceed, which we'll see in verses 7 to 10. But first, let's notice this important fact. Help is available. Verses 7 and 8. Then David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, please bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said to him, Pursue, for you will surely overtake them, and you will surely rescue all. What do we observe from these verses? First, that David acknowledged Abiathar the priest and asked for his assistance. Please bring me the ephod. The ephod was a type of apron worn by the high priest as part of his priestly garments. Attached to the ephod was the breastpiece of judgment, which contained 12 precious stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Each stone was engraved with a tribe's name. Two separate objects known as the Urim and the Thummim, meaning lights and judgments, were also inserted into the breastpiece of judgment. We find out more about these sacred objects in Exodus 28, which we won't read now because of time. Suffice it to say for now that these objects were used to make inquiry of the Lord in order to determine his will. Furthermore, we notice that David acknowledged God as the, we're told, he inquired of the Lord for permission to pursue his enemies and to overtake or take hold upon them. He did not yet know who was responsible for these crimes, nor did he even ask God to reveal who these enemies were. Next, 
we notice God granting him permission, saying, pursue. More than that, God graciously gave David the promise of victory, stating, you will surely overtake them. And on top of that, God assured him, saying, you will surely rescue all. This promise was given even though David did not specifically ask God to help him recover all that his enemies had stolen. But isn't that just like our God? The Apostle Paul exclaims in Ephesians chapter 3, 20 and 21, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And let the people of God say, Amen. Amen. In David's present case, we see the wisdom of not acting hastily or presumptuously apart from first seeking God in prayer and getting his clear direction. Now let's move on and observe not only the, that the help was available or is available, but that courage is contagious. We see that in verses 9 and 10. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those left behind remained. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 were who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor, remained behind. Now we see David's faith in God on display once again. And what we also notice is that these same men who were ready to stone him just a few moments ago, they are now fully persuaded to follow him in pursuit of their enemies. What we also learn is that despite 200 of his men becoming physically incapable to continue the rescue mission, that did not deter David and the remaining men from pressing on. I would therefore like to submit a second application point, which I believe will be helpful for us. In times of sorrow, loss, and distress, it is critical that we Accept the help which the Lord provides. Seek his will in prayer for clear direction and not give up despite the weaknesses of others. As David moved from weeping to waiting on God and having prayed to receive direction from God, he now proceeds on the rescue mission with a reduced army, but more importantly, with renewed strength in God and faith in his word of promise. We will see next what it means to press on and possess God's promises in verses 11 through 20. Please notice in the next few verses this one very important principle. While pressing on, may require leaving others behind. Pressing on always requires loving our neighbor. 
continuing at verse 11. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, to whom do you belong? And where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite. And my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Cherethites and on that which belongs to Judah and on the Negev of Caleb. And we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. Please pause there. What we now discover is that while pursuing their enemies, David and his men were wise not to overlook or forsake a feeble foreigner in the field. Also, by showing compassion to this Egyptian and thus providing for his physical needs, although he was partly responsible for the devastating losses and grief that David and his men experienced, David gained very helpful information. No doubt, this was all the result of divine providence. We may not always see God at work, Though God is always working through the circumstances of life. And we know that in all things, God works together, all of them, for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Have you received his effectual call to salvation? If so, you can claim that promise. But it is also good for us to see that this compassionate act by David and his men fulfilled two commands given to Israel. We are very familiar with the first one found in Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor. How? As yourself. I am the Lord. Jesus expounds on this commandment in his parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, showing that each of us has a responsibility to be a neighbor, particularly to those in need, regardless of their nationality. The second command that David and his men fulfilled is less familiar to us. It's found in Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall not wrong a stranger, that is, a foreigner, or oppress, that is, afflict him. For you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. God himself 
is the standard of this command. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, we read, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Not only that, but this compassionate act by David and his men also demonstrates the wisdom of Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. As we will find out next, David and his men are about to be greatly rewarded as they complete the mission. We pick up the reading from verse 16. When he, that is the Egyptian, had brought him down, behold, they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and the cattle, which the people drove ahead of the other livestock. And they said, this is David's spoil. What a resounding victory. Even more so. What an abundant display of God's amazing grace. Yes. David and his men recovered everything yes. their enemies stole. And every family member their enemies took captive. All of this was totally undeserving. But for the grace of God. This brings us now to the final application point for this message. In times of loss, sorrow, and distress, we must not neglect the command to love our neighbor, even our enemies, and we must trust God for the best outcomes. It would be remiss of me, however, if I fail to add here the flip side of the coin, and it's this. There is absolutely no guarantee that God will do for all believers in this life exactly what he did for David in this true story. Now, I know that was a completely antithetical statement to the verses we just read. But it is a true statement we all need to hear, although it is a hard pill for us to swallow. We all enjoy stories with the happy endings, as was the case in this true story. We all know 
that God in his sovereign grace intervenes at times in the lives of his children to give them their jobs back or even a better job. He sometimes chooses to give them their homes back or even a better home. We also know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is more than able to restore us to a full measure of health when we're sick or to bring that prodigal son or daughter back home or to reconcile estranged relationships. And we praise God and rejoice when these things happen, don't we? And we should. But also knowing what to do in times of loss, sorrow, and distress when things head further south is perhaps even more important for us to grasp. This is the blessed perspective given to us in the conclusion of Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. I appreciate the way William MacDonald summarized Hebrews chapter 11 in the Believer's Bible commentary. Quote, God has borne witness to the faith of these Old Testament heroes, yet they died before receiving the fulfillment of the promise they did not live to see the advent of the long-awaited Messiah or to enjoy the blessings that would flow from his ministry. God has reserved something better for us. He had arranged that they should not be made perfect apart from us. They never did enjoy a perfect conscience as far as sin was concerned. And they will not enjoy the full perfection of glorified bodies 
in heaven until we all are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. To put it another way, the Old Testament believers were not as privileged as we are. Yet think of their thrilling triumphs and tremendous trials. Think of their exploits and their endurance. They lived on the other side of the cross. We live in the glory of the cross. Yet how do our lives compare with theirs? This is the compelling challenge. In conclusion then, here are the final application points again. In times of loss, sorrow, and distress, we must not neglect the command to love our neighbor, even our enemies. And we must trust God for the best outcomes. However, there is absolutely no guarantee that God will do for all believers in this life exactly what he did for David in this true story. Therefore, this is what we must always seek to do. Keep trusting God with eternity in view because heaven is where we will be rewarded. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that we have learned principles that we can apply from heroes of the faith like David. Thank you for showing us what to do when we face significant losses in life. Thank you that in our weeping, you are the God of comfort. Thank you that in our times of waiting, you are our strength. Thank you that in our times of distress, we can pray to you a very present help in trouble. Help us then to live in prayerful dependence upon you, seeking to know and to do your will in all matters. By your indwelling spirit, may we love our enemies. May we trust you always to cause us to triumph in Christ in every circumstance until we see him, our blessed Lord and Savior, face to face. Amen.